My guest this week is human rights campaigner and co-founder of Hong Kong Watch, Benedict Rogers. Benedict, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Good, good to be with you. Thank you. This time every year, we see the images of royalty, presidents, prime ministers and foreign ministers from across the globe descend on New York to attend the United Nations General Assembly. Is the General Assembly effective at tackling the world's biggest issues? Well, I think in some ways it's a bit more effective than perhaps uh, some of the other UN bodies because um, the voice of every member state in the General Assembly uh, can be heard and there's no veto and uh, big powers, of course, can try and influence other countries, but but basically everyone can have their say. So from that point of view, it's, um, it's a welcome arena. Um, but at the same time, it is largely a, a talking shop and uh, it's mostly statements. Um, but those are important. And in recent months, there has been a lot of criticism levelled at, at the UN's handling or, or lack thereof of major events such as the Western withdrawal of Afghanistan, the military coup in Myanmar and China's clampdown on democracy in Hong Kong. Is the United Nations fit for purpose in the modern world? I think the United Nations has uh, huge uh, failings and, and weaknesses. It's a largely toothless uh, organization. Uh, and that, that's partly because of its structure and, and the veto power and, and various other factors. Um, but I, I have a particular criticism at the moment of the current UN Secretary General, who um, could have uh, made a much greater use of his office uh, to, um, if not address himself, at least mobilise member states more uh, on some of these issues. And he's been woefully inactive on uh, the genocide of the Uyghurs, the dismantling of democracy in Hong Kong, uh, even the, the crisis in Myanmar, he's made a few hand-wringing statements, but doesn't appear to have really shown great leadership. So uh, there are a lot of uh, criticisms to be made of, of the UN uh, on all these issues. That said, I still think the world is better off with an institution like the UN than, than not, um, but we ought to be making much better use of it. This year, the, the Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, he was re-elected un unopposed uh, as Secretary-General. Does that show a failing of the office of secretary general or more about the process of choosing the UN's leader? I think um, probably more about the, the process um, and uh, the fact that um, my understanding is he had China's support. That may explain why he's uh, so quiet on the Uyghurs and, and Hong Kong. Um, and, uh, and there was obviously no other uh, credible candidates who put themselves forward. So um, I think it's, yeah, it's more about the process than the office. And within the United Nations at the moment, there have been questions about whether or not the UN should recognise the Taliban as Afghanistan's official government. Now, if, if the UN does do this, the Taliban would end up taking Afghanistan's seats on the UN's Women's Rights Commission. Can the UN be taken seriously if it legitimises this organisation? I think it would do the UN a lot of damage if it took that step. And there's a parallel also with Myanmar. Um, there's the, the issue coming up over uh, which representative of Myanmar is, is accredited as their ambassador. The current ambassador who represents the democratically elected government there uh, uh, has uh, took a very uh, co courageous stand against the coup. And um, I very much hope that he will keep his credentials and... Uh, that the military regime in Myanmar is not recognised, and the same goes for the Taliban. Uh, the Taliban is um, doesn't have a democratic mandate in Afghanistan. It, it's 
replaced uh, an elected government that effectively it's overthrown in the context of, of our withdrawal. And to have um, uh, the Taliban sitting on uh, the uh, women's rights uh, body, uh, just as having China and uh, Cuba and, and, and various other human rights violating countries on the Human Rights Council really undermines the UN's credibility on these issues. And with, with the Human Rights Council, you, you mentioned there China and Cuba on who sit on, on the body. And as well as that, there are also Pakistan and Venezuela who are also serious human rights violators. When such an influential body is made up of, of countries committing such flagrant human rights abuses, what hope is there for the victims of these atrocities? Well, I think the hope lies in the voices and the actions of countries that uh, respect human rights and that uh, are democracies and, and that defend, um, not perfectly, but but uh, defend uh, these, these values. And I think um, it would be a mistake to completely give up on uh, the, the UN um, despite all the criticisms of it. I, th I think this is a very, the very reason why uh, democracies ought to be uh, getting in there and, and being even more active, particularly at the Human Rights Council um, and running for seats on the Human Rights Council uh, to try to ensure that that council is, is made up of, uh, of countries that uphold human rights rather than abuse them. And, and there are times where we get, we get lucky. Um, in, I think, 2012 or 2013, I was very involved in uh, the campaign to see the establishment of a UN Commission of Inquiry on Crimes Against Humanity in North Korea. And many people said, uh, the UN will never do it, you, uh, you're wasting your time. Um, but we built up momentum, we, we built a coalition of NGOs to, to push for it. Uh, and um, the composition of the Human Rights Council in, I think, 2012, 2013, uh, was actually quite a good composition. Most of the uh, countries that would have opposed us, that, that are uh, countries with serious human rights uh, abusing records, uh, had rotated off the Human Rights Council, and it, actually the majority of the members that year were countries that um, respect human rights. So um, th there are ways to to improve things, and, and I think that's why we uh, democratic countries should be doing more um, to uh, make their voices heard, uh, and and through them, the voices of, of victims of human rights violations. And with that, of course, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson will leave for New York this weekend with his new Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss. What do you think the UK's priorities should be for this year's General Assembly? Well, clearly, um, Afghanistan uh, will, will obviously be um, the, the major priority, but I hope that um, the, the Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary and the British government uh, will highlight some of the other crises that are, uh, have fallen from the headlines but still need really urgent attention. So I would say uh, the um, crisis in Myanmar, which is uh, both a, a major human rights crisis combined with a major COVID uh, crisis, uh, and we should be mobilizing the international community to find ways to cut uh, the lifeline to the the illegitimate criminal uh, Myanmar military regime that's overthrown a democratic government, uh, but provide a lifeline to the people of Myanmar through humanitarian uh, assistance. Um, I think the question of the genocide of the Uyghurs should be a priority. Um, the Uyghur tribunal that concluded its uh, hearings uh, just last week will come out in December with its judgment, um, but uh, this ought to be a priority at the UN 
um, particularly as the UN um, Human Rights Commissioner, uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, uh, has uh, made several attempts to get access to Xinjiang and, and, and been denied. The dismantling of, of Hong Kong's democracy and freedoms in flagrant violation of an international treaty that's lodged at the UN uh, should definitely be a, a priority. And I think that as we see North Korea uh, again, testing uh, uh, new, its, its nuclear arsenal, uh, we shouldn't forget the human rights crisis in North Korea as well. So those would be my priorities. I know there are other issues in the world as well, but I hope those would be among uh, the issues that the Prime Minister raises. We'll, we'll talk about the Uyghur Tribunal in a moment, but I, I just want to pick up on a, a, a quite an interesting article that you wrote for CapEx earlier in the week, which is about what Liz Truss should take on in the Foreign Office after succeeding Dominic Raab. What do you think her main focus should be uh, in, in what is such a, a challenging world at the moment? Well, I think that um, it, it's interesting. I said, said in the article that she was appointed uh, on uh, International Day of Democracy um, at a time when democracy and human rights are uh, under probably the gravest uh, attack since the Cold War. Uh, and uh, at a time when authoritarianism is is on the rise around the world. So I hope that her overarching theme would be defending freedom uh, and democracy and, and human rights. Um, and she could look to, again, as I outlined in the article, she could look to some of her predecessors for some of their priority initiatives to build on. So uh, if you think of um, uh, Dominic Raab's uh, leadership on uh, introducing Magnitsky sanctions. Um, she could deploy those much more effectively. Uh, Jeremy Hunt uh, prioritised both media freedom uh, and religious freedom around the world, which I think are two pillars of any open uh, free society. Uh, and William Hague and Boris Johnson, uh, as foreign secretaries, uh, prioritised uh, women's rights. Um, so William Hague initiated the sexual uh, the, the focus on sexual violence in conflict, and Boris Johnson campaigned on uh, uh, women and girls' education. So if you take all of those themes from her predecessors, uh, I think that gives a good platform to build on in the context of defending democracy and freedom uh, uh, around the world. And one of those measures around protecting democracy and freedom at the moment is the introduction of this new AUKUS nuclear alliance between Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States, which was announced on Wednesday. Why do you feel that this pact is so important? I think it's very important for, for two reasons. I mean, firstly, um, uh, the three countries that have come into this, the UK, Australia and the United States, are three of the closest uh, allies and three of the really leaders of, of the free world. Uh, and they have a, a close common bond of, of shared values. Uh, and so um, it's a very natural alliance to, to have formed. Um, and of course, they represent um, uh, three part, different parts of the world. And Australia has a key role to play, uh, particularly in the, in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, and it's important also because um, Clearly, China, uh, the Chinese Communist Party regime, um, is the major threat, both in that region and, and I would say, worldwide. Um, and so for these three countries to come together to uh, defend uh, our values of freedom against this growing threat that is not just a military threat, although that is part, part of it, um, but of course there's uh, cyber security, there's infiltration, uh, influence, uh, and, and, and so on. 
uh, even on our own doorstep in our universities and, and other institutions. So um, I'm really pleased that this alliance has been formed and, and I think it's very timely and, and very needed. And both the United Kingdom and the United States are definitely pivoting their foreign policy agenda towards the Asia-Pacific, the Indo-Pacific region as a counter to the, the arising China, as you mentioned there. Is, is this more of a, a smart move or is it going to simply push China towards a possible Cold War 2.0, as some commentators are suggesting? I think it is a smart move. Um, I think that um, for too long, the tendency, until very recently, the tendency has been to sort of kowtow to China and um, prioritise short-term economic uh, benefits and, and to think that um, China's rise is inevitable and, and that we just have to um, give in to them rather than stand up to them. And I think people are now realising uh, through a combination of, of factors over the last um, couple of years, including uh, the, the cover-up of COVID-19 at its very beginning and the repression of, of whistleblowers, the evidence that's coming to light about the Uyghurs, uh, the, the shocking uh, dismantling of Hong Kong's freedoms. I think people are realising that actually the time has come to, uh, to stand up to this regime. And, and my own view is that um, this is a regime that, of course, they won't like these these kind of actions. But on the whole, I think they they're more likely to respect uh, strength than um, kowtowing. The more you kowtow to them, the, the more they'll take. Uh, whereas um, a, a show of strength like this that, that says we're not prepared to accept uh, the, this aggression uh, and repression, um, it's uh, yeah, it, it will make relations more tense. But I think in the long run. It's the right thing to do. And, and the freedom of Taiwan at the moment seems to be becoming more and more of a flashpoint between China and the rest of the world. Do you think the West is prepared now, particularly with this creation of AUKUS, to defend Taiwan as countries have promised to do? Should such a situation arise where China does come in and start to dismantle the principles of democracy and freedom in the territory? Well, I certainly hope so. And I think that the... Um, comments by uh, Boris Johnson yesterday when this was raised in Parliament were, were quite encouraging. He, I mean, he, he was quite careful in how he worded it, uh, which I think is right. You don't want to uh, say outright that um, you're going to go to war because that, that will escalate tensions even further. But I think he, he made it very clear that we would defend the international rules-based order. Um, uh, and uh, in saying that, I think that the, the message is is fairly clear, and, and certainly we should be doing everything possible to make it clear to Beijing that um, any move to take Taiwan by force would not be acceptable and that we should stand by Taiwan. Taiwan has attempted to join the World Health Organization numerous times as an observer, but has been unsuccessful each time. Do you think Taiwan should try to expand its access and be given observer status to the whole of the United Nations as other countries and territories such as the Holy See and uh, the state of Palestine have been? I think that would be a, a very good idea. And I, I think that um, democracies around the world um, need to realize that Taiwan is is one of our leading allies. It's, it's one of the um, most dynamic democracies uh, in the Asia region. Um, it's uh, a, a place that has um, actually handled COVID uh, extremely well, um, and that if we had listened to Taiwan at the very beginning of the pandemic, um, and if the WHO had engaged with Taiwan, 
you know, we might have learned some things that could have prevented the pandemic uh, growing as it did. So I think it's in all our interest to strengthen our relations with Taiwan, um, to give Taiwan every possible platform. Um, I don't necessarily um, advocate uh, um, full diplomatic relations because that might only because that might be a provocation too far for, for Beijing. But I think everything um, stopping short of of that uh, should be should be encouraged. So we should have uh, ministerial visits to Taiwan more regularly at a more senior level. Um, and yes, I think um, giving Taiwan every possible platform within the UN system, even if it can't be a, a member state uh, as an observer, um, would be would be very worthwhile. And just to bring our conversation back slightly towards the, the General Assembly, uh, the Chinese government's mission to the United Nations has organized an event for the most senior diplomats to celebrate the region of Xinjiang as, quote, a wonderful land. Given that the Chinese Communist Party is widely suspected of committing genocide against the Uyghur people in the region of Xinjiang, how can the United Nations permit this? Well, it's a very good question. Um, I mean, I suppose the answer is China is obviously a significant member state. It's a, one of the permanent uh, members of the Security Council. They're entitled to hold um, uh, events, um, but I certainly think that uh, other member states should be doing everything possible to call them out for this and, and to make it clear that Xinjiang is not a wonderful region uh, at all. I mean, it, it could be if, if the Uyghur people were free and were not facing ge genocide, but at the moment it's a place of atrocity crimes, uh, slave labor, torture, religious persecution, uh, sexual violence, concentration camps, and uh, whether or not people agree that it's genocide, I personally think it is. Um, the Uyghur Tribunal will, will come out with their determination uh, later this year. But but whether or not it, it meets the definition of genocide, it is certainly a place of intense repression and, and grave atrocity crimes. And um, the rest of the UN should be uh, making that clear in, in contrast to this event that uh, the PRC is holding. You, you've mentioned the Uyghur Tribunal there, and there have been uh, two sets of hearings set based in London to give the Uyghurs an opportunity to uh, give their testimony on the current situation in Xinjiang and to give them, in effect, their day in court because the international process appears to be blocked to them. Why can the Chinese government not be taken to court in either the International Courts of Justice or the International Criminal Court? Well, essentially because um, they're not a, a signatory to the Roman statute for the International Criminal Court, and um, the only way to get it to the ICC is through the Security Council for, for those who aren't parties to the Roman statute, and obviously China um, would, uh, would uh, use its veto power there. Um, and, uh, and a similar situation uh, arises with, with the ICJ. Um, and I think there's, there's um, also a lack of political will to, uh, to take on uh, China in, in this sort of way. Um, I mean, that's why it, 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 I thought it was so important that earlier this year, uh, legislation that was put forward, um, an, an amendment to the trade bill in the British Parliament, um, which w had it passed, it would have enabled our own courts to uh, to hold China accountable, um, for people to uh, bring charges of genocide uh, and to, to our own high court. Sadly, um, the British government had a sort of circular argument because they kept saying it's not for governments and parliaments to decide genocide, it's for the courts, knowing full well that um, neither the international courts nor our own courts 
uh, are, are empowered to do so. And it, you, you mentioned that China's ability to veto any proposal that could uh, raise this issue in the international courts. And given the fact that China is a permanent member with this right to veto, it, it does show a clear problem within the mechanisms of the United Nations Nation Security Council, and this also with Russia as well, who appears to be becoming an increasingly hostile actor. Do you think it's time now to scrap the permanent positions and the veto powers that come with that? I definitely think reform uh, of the veto and reform of the Security Council is, is needed. Um, exactly how that's done, um, I, I don't know the, the uh, variety of options, but yes, I, I, I certainly think um, action should be taken to stop uh, countries like China and Russia uh, being able to use uh, their veto. I guess the problem is how do you get such a reform through um, because they could veto the reform. So um, it's a sort of circular kind of chicken and egg situation. Um, but the short answer to your question is yes, I, I definitely think um, reform should be explored and, and pursued. And given that the court's process is seemingly blocked for the Uyghur people and for the Chinese government to actually be tried for their suspected crimes here. What do you hope will happen once the Uyghur tribunal's report is published? Well, um, I don't want to prejudge their judgment, so it depends, of course, what, what their conclusions are. But I certainly hope that the, um, whatever their conclusions, I hope that the international community and, and governments will, will take the tribunal really seriously because um, it, it was um, an extremely comprehensive uh, exercise. Um, I believe that over the course of the eight days of hearings, uh, four in June and four in September, they heard from uh, over 70 witnesses, um, many uh, Uyghur survivors, and also many uh, international experts. Um, as well as having tens of thousands of uh, pages of evidence. Um, so I think they have um, assembled uh, one of the most comprehensive bodies of evidence of what is happening to the Uyghurs. Uh, if they conclude uh, that uh, it, it is indeed genocide, then certainly the, that carries with it certain obligations for, for governments to, uh, to then act upon. Um, and I, I think it's inconceivable from the evidence that I've heard presented to the tribunal that they wouldn't at least conclude that it's uh, very grave atrocity crimes. So either way, I think um, I hope that uh, the British government and other governments will engage with the tribunal's judgment once it's once it's out, uh, and and then look very seriously at what actions they can take take, uh, and that includes um, looking again at options for accountability, uh, but also um, uh, increasing uh, sanctions. At the moment, the UK has a handful of fairly sort of token sanctions against uh, some individuals and entities in Xinjiang, but they haven't, for example, sanctioned the party secretary in Xinjiang, uh, Chen Chuanguo, who's really the architect uh, of, of the intensification of, of repression in Xinjiang, and that's extraordinary. So I, I hope they will follow uh, the, the tribunal's judgment with um, with sa sanctions um, and, and other actions to, to tackle uh, atrocity crimes and particularly to, to tackle um, the issue of um, slave labour, uh, especially in our supply chains. Just to move away slightly from the issues around the, the Uyghurs, 
the COVID-19 pandemic has naturally dominated the news cycle and in doing so it has unfortunately taken the light away from the phenomenally brave pro-democracy activists in Hong Kong. What does the situation currently look like in Hong Kong for the pro-democracy movement? The situation in, in Hong Kong now is um, incredibly dark and getting continuously darker. Um, essentially, the uh, pro-democracy movement has been, first of all, pushed out of, of every available space that um, they almost took for granted until a, a year or so ago. Um, so they can no longer protest in the streets. Um, they've been thrown out of the uh, legislature. There are, there are no pro-democracy legislators in the Legislative Council. They've been uh, pushed out of the district councils, which where they won an overwhelming majority uh, in at the end of 2019. Um, uh, they've been uh, they've had uh, the press uh, uh, continually repressed the closure of the pro-democracy newspaper Apple Daily. Um, in academia and the school system, uh, any talk of freedom and democracy is now uh, pretty much uh, for, forbidden, and, and instead Chinese Communist Party propaganda is is being taught. Um, uh, so it really, in, in every um, uh, corner of, of life in Hong Kong where um, pro-democracy ideas could be advanced, uh, it's now incredibly difficult, if not impossible, uh, to do so. I mean, that said, some very brave people are still trying to find creative, subtle ways of expressing dissent. Um, and of course, many are, are in jail, um, and those who aren't in jail uh, are either on trial or um, understandably keeping their heads down or have left uh, Hong Kong. So it's um, really, it's been the complete dismantling of Hong Kong's freedoms. Is the United Kingdom doing enough for the people of Hong Kong as a signatory to the Sino-British Joint Declaration, which essentially created Hong Kong's one country, two systems governing process? Uh, I don't think the United Kingdom is, is doing enough. Um, certainly they, their position has improved significantly uh, compared to where, where it was a few years ago. And uh, the one um, poli concrete policy that they've introduced that where well, I would give them credit for uh, is the uh, very generous and courageous uh, BNO uh, visa scheme that's given a lifeline to uh, thousands of, of Hong Kongers um, uh, who, who want to leave and, and need to leave the, the city. Um, and that's very welcome. But apart from that, most of their response to the uh, events in Hong Kong um, has been rhetorical. It's been uh, statements Yes, uh, statements that get uh, stronger and stronger each time and more, more robust language, and that's welcome. But Beijing is not going to be uh, influenced by statements and words uh, alone. And that's why, um, uh, again, uh, on the question of sanctions, uh, I think that the UK should be using either its Magnitsky uh, sanctions legislation that it has, uh, or if it feels for whatever reason that um, uh, that's that's not the appropriate mechanism. They could create uh, some bespoke sanctions uh, for Hong Kong, uh, as they've done in the case of Myanmar. Um, but either way, they should be uh, holding those responsible for uh, dismantling Hong Kong's freedoms in, in breach of an international treaty uh, accountable um, and, and making them pay um, the highest possible price for what they've done. And, and that means targeted sanctions against those responsible in Beijing and in Hong Kong. Given that, that how dark the current situation is, as, as you've just said, do you think Hong Kong will ever be free again? 
Um, well, I've sort of learned over the years of, of human rights activism um, never to um, never to lose hope and also never to make predictions. Um, it, it, under uh, Xi Jinping's Chinese Communist Party regime, um, I would say it's it's it's. Uh, I cannot see how Hong Kong can be free um, while while he's in power, um, and it's unlikely that it would be free. Uh, uh, for as long as the Chinese Communist Party itself remains in power. Um, but we shouldn't just assume that that regime is, is always going to be there. H history shows that uh, dictatorships don't last forever. Sometimes regimes change or, or fall when we don't necessarily expect them to. So I wouldn't say Hong Kong will never be free again. Uh, if I thought that, there would be little point in, in, in doing what I do. Um, I do hope um, the day will come when Hong Kong will be free. But I think um, we also need to realize that Hong Kong's future is um, very interlinked with uh, China's future. And so I hope the day will come when all the peoples uh, of China um, and all, everybody who's living under uh, the CCP's repression at the moment um, will, will be free. And, and I hope that will include Hong Kong. You wrote a report earlier this year on, on China for the Conservative Party's Human Rights Commission. How has the, the Conservative Party and, and indeed the government's responded to your recommendations from the report? Well, what was encouraging uh, this time compared to the previous uh, time when we published a, a report uh, on China, which was in 2016, um, uh, at the height of David Cameron's uh, so-called golden era of Sino-British relations, was that in 2016, not only were um, uh, people at the top of government furious with us because uh, they regarded it as, as really um, threatening or undermining uh, their efforts to, to build a stronger relationship with China. Um, and so I was told that people in number 10 and, and the Foreign Secretary and Chancellor at the time um, were, were very unhappy with, with our report. Um, but also we could um, hardly get any uh, member of parliament, including those who, who agreed with us, but we could hardly get any MPs um, to um, publicly associate themselves with our report. And, uh, in fact, I think you could count on less than one hand the MPs who, who spoke, spoke out in our support and, and identified with the report. Um, this time around, the response was very, very different. Um, we had lots of MPs uh, publicly supporting the report, um, uh, endorsing it. Uh, and um, I had communication with people in very senior levels in government, um, in number 10, uh, at the top of the Foreign Office, uh, some cabinet ministers, um, uh, uh, really uh, uh, being very encouraging, saying that they were taking the report seriously, that they welcomed it, they found it very helpful. Now, that said, um, uh, I'd have to probably go back and look at all our recommendations and, and, and see what, uh, if any, have actually been enacted. Um, uh, and I, I, that, that would be an exercise worth, worth doing. I think the government at the moment is it has got a lot better in saying the right things on China. It's still got a long way to go in terms of actually doing the right thing. And just to to finish and bring our conversation back to the General Assembly, we've discussed what you'd like to see as the UK's priorities for this General Assembly. But what would you like to hear specifically from the Prime Minister's address to the Assembly? I think um, similar to uh, my answer about the, what the Foreign Secretary's um, uh, priorities should be, I, I hope the Prime Minister in his address will 
really set out uh, a defense of uh, democratic values, the rule of law, the international rules-based order, human rights. Uh, and I hope that within that, he'll touch on many of the, the world's most uh, uh, egregious examples of violations of human rights, including all the ones that we've been talking about. Um, but I hope that he will, uh, as he's done uh, in, in, uh, in, in this week in, in his uh, decision to join Australia and, and the United States in, in this initiative, uh, and he's done previously as well when he um, talked about expanding the G7 into a D10 uh, group of democracies, I hope that he will use his speech to the General Assembly to really mobilize the democratic world um, to, to lead a, a fight back against authoritarianism and a defense of, of uh, freedom and human rights and democratic values. And Dick Rogers, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much.